Welcome listeners. Thank you for tuning into the first Power of Voices podcast presented to you by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This podcast series is linked to the policy framework for strengthening civil society and will focus specifically on the core elements that are at the basis of this framework. In this first podcast, we'll be talking about civic space and what this means for civil society organizations, activists, diplomats, and other actors working on the front lines of strengthening civil society. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the nature of our work, impacted the relationship between citizens and their governments, and highlighted the importance of political rights around the globe. These challenges have even more than before impacted the most marginalized groups around the world. You'll hear the voices, experiences, and opinions of activists, academics, diplomats, and others during these podcasts. In this first episode, our guests are Mai Abdul Hafez, an activist in Egypt, Thomas Carothers, interim president at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Lisa John, the secretary general of Civicus, and special rapporteur on the right of freedom of peaceful assembly and association, Clément Voulet. Please join our host, Jeroen Kelderhuis, head of the Civil Society and Education Division at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Hello, everyone. In this first episode, we're going to address the very urgent topic of the worldwide shrinking of civic space with some great guests. What does this shrinking of civic space mean in practice? And what can we do collectively to address this very urgent issue? We start with someone who works on the front lines, an inspiring activist working on women rights and gender equality, Mrs. Abdelhavis. Welcome. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and what civic space means to you. Absolutely. So uh, I am a part of a feminist collective that is active for the last almost 10 years in Egypt. Uh, we work in production of knowledge regarding gender, sexuality, feminism, uh, and other topics. Uh, and our uh, knowledge is basically intersectional knowledge. The civic space have been extremely closed for the last couple of years. Uh, we define ourselves as an Arab-speaking African feminist collective. So we align with the African feminist uh, politics. Yeah, very interesting. And you talk about intersectional knowledge. What do you mean with that? Uh, what we mean by intersectional knowledge is knowledge not only focusing on issues um, or taking the lens of gender as the only um, issue that is facing women and uh, people in Egypt, but uh, adding to it... Uh, more lenses of examining how living under a military state, <laughs> uh, for example, class, race, sexuality, gender, mm -hmm. and religion, especially in a country that have Muslims and, and Christian, um, can <clears throat> not only um, give us a better analysis of how we are navigating and struggling, but also the different dynamics that place in every struggle that we're going through and getting a clearer answer or a, a better strategies of how to go up about it. Yeah, so a very holistic uh, approach in your research. Yes. Our second guest is Mr. Thomas Carothers. Mr. Carothers has written and contributed to many acclaimed books and articles in prominent journals and newspapers, including most recently, Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. Your work is obviously very different from uh, Mrs. Abdelhafez, your researcher and interim president of a fairly large organization. What motivates you to write on topics like civic space? Do you feel policymakers, let alone the public at large, generally understand what's going on? I've been gripped by the topic of closing civic space for, unfortunately, almost 15 years because this is a trend that's gone back a while. I think it's so gripping because it's at the very heart of democracy's fate in today's world. Civic space is the proverbial, we say in English, canary in the coal mine. So it can sound like a kind of technical topic, civic space, but it's actually the, you know, it's like the main artery of democracy that's coursing through a society. So I find studying the subject, engaging with activists, engaging with diplomats, with aid practitioners, with governments in countries under stress, really gets you to the heart of, of many issues fundamental to democracy today. Yeah, uh, and policymakers are talking a lot now about uh, the shrinking of civic space. Uh, challenges to civic space are not new, but it seems that civic space has come under attack since, let's say, the mid-2000s. 
But obviously a lot has changed in the past year in all our lives, specifically talking about uh, lockdown measures in various countries. Just recently, Amnesty International put the spotlight on the importance of protecting human rights defenders, especially during a global crisis like we are in now. How has the COVID pandemic changed civic space, according to your research, Mr. Cowthers? I'd summarize it by saying there's two kind of contradictory effects. On the one hand, the pandemic has given many governments, dozens and dozens of governments around the world, an excuse, a justification for, for taking even more restrictive measures towards civic space. So that's one trend. But then at the same time, the pandemic has opened the door to many new kinds of civic activities because civic actors have stepped up in difficult pandemic conditions with providing basic services to citizens under stress, to helping governments uh, provide the kind of health responses that are needed and to calling attention to the need for better public messaging and public information. And so this kind of crisis highlights the value of civil society. And so I think what we see is a really interesting mix of these two factors. On the one hand, governments cracking down on civic mm -hmm. space, but on the other hand, the pandemic showing the vitality and importance of civic space. So it's, a, it's an unusually complex situation. So all around us, we see examples of governments cracking down on protesters, cracking down on civic activists out of just the crude desire to you know, hold on to their power and to limit public space. So it's not only a, a, a negative indeed, but in one of your articles you state that illiberal political forces are driving democratic backsliding in a growing number of countries. And these forces often stigmatize and repress activists fighting for the rights of minorities. The title of the article that I just quoted from is, is called Defending Civic Space is the International Community Stuck that you wrote in uh, October 2019. Uh, but I guess the, the, the question is even more uh, urgent now. Are, are we stuck? I mean, we, we're watching all these um, developments in, in those countries that you also mentioned. But do you feel that the international community uh, is doing enough to counter such um, developments? Well, you know, there's been a lot of progress on this topic over the last five to ten years. There's been much greater understanding of what's happening and research on it and discussions of it. There's many more aid resources, at least for kind of emergency funds for activists who are in trouble. There's been some diplomatic pushback in specific cases, but in a larger sense, I think the international community, and by this I mean the set of both public and private organizations that are concerned with the state of civic space in the world are struggling to come up with a response that's that matches the scale of the problem. And then we also have the problem of technology. Technology is fueling repression in many places. New surveillance technologies, for example, that are being used against protesters or against activists. Are we taking the measures needed to restrict the export of surveillance technologies? Are we helping to regulate technology in ways that prevent or at least limit its use for repressive purposes. So there's a lot more to be done. I know the title of the paper could seem a bit harsh, is the international community stuck? But uh, I think we need to face the fact that uh, this problem is, if anything, getting worse, not getting better. And we, if we care about democracy's fate, we need to do more about it. Mrs. Abdelhafez, the COVID pandemic uh, has changed a lot. Um, You said, I mean, civic space is, is, is closed uh, already for some time uh, in, in your country. But has the COVID pandemic changed uh, your work or um, limited? Or did you discover um, new ways of working during the, the pandemic? Um, well, the um, attack on civil society was forcing us to work basically from our homes because it is the safest place to work. Uh, having an office is a, is a risk. So it, it, there was a change, but there wasn't a change at the mm -hmm. same time. So we were working from home before the pandemic started. So it felt kind of weird when everyone felt the need to state that people now are doing this labor from home, which made invisible the fact that a lot of activists and a lot of groups do work outside of uh, headquarters or offices. It felt kind of privileged, like you guys have been working in office. Wow, great, good for you. We've been working from home. Yeah. Um, all this time. So it just made everything clearer that everything that we've been normalizing is things that the world has been, is now struggling with. Yeah. So, so do you see a difference uh, in the way women and girls specifically are affected? Or do you actually say what you're saying is things were already happening, but through the focus on the pandemic, some thematic areas that you were working on already come more to the, to the front? 
as you said, the things come more to the front. People, women and girls, um, queers, trans people, mm -hmm. uh, poor people in this country have always been struggling with the same issues. It just came more forward. Women have always struggled with violence, whether in the public sphere or in the private sphere. So now we're treating it as if it's a new phenomenon. Like, what are we going to do with women being attacked online? Because they are home, so they're connected online most of the time, and this is where the violence is happening, home, online. So everyone has been affected. And the way that this thing is unfolding, we're unable to keep up because you're connecting with organization, with funders, with international community that is so used to doing things the way that it's been done for the last 20 years. And you get stuck communicating that the world is changing, yeah. that the symbolist thing, mechanism of even reporting and funding and uh, writing and uh, analyzing changed. So, so what do you think are the necessary steps to steps to improve uh, the space to participate and to speak out for women, for example, or, or other uh, marginalized, uh, uh, discriminated groups in Egypt, or maybe even broader for civil society organizations worldwide? My suggestion would be to have local activists and uh, local organizations to inform a bigger uh, or suggest or help in building and changing and reshaping all the procedures that we've been stuck with for the past at least 20 years. And funding mechanisms have been working in a certain way. And international communication have been working in a certain way. International convening have been working in a certain way. Activists show up to certain spaces and they are unable to be heard because they do not have translators. And the fact that you are invited to a to a certain um, convening, but no one considered the fact that this convening is happening in one of the worst countries to get visa to. And the fact that those mechanisms are so rigid and unchanging that you end up, even if you showed up, you end up just being there as a token. It's actually causing more trouble and more labor to everyone who's connected them. Is the characters you, you wrote a lot about uh, shrinking civic space also before the uh, pandemic? Uh, are these things you recognize in your research? These very practical uh, obstacles for civil society organizations? No, absolutely. I mean, she's raised a lot of very important points. I mean, for example, during the pandemic, the pandemic accentuates certain differences that make it much harder. I mean, the only positive thing I'd say is is the fact that we've, as a research organization, it's a small thing, but we found that we're able now to bring the knowledge from many different places to policymaking audiences more easily because of the online shift in a way. And so that we're doing many more events and many more informal consultations where we bring in expertise and knowledge from a wider range of people from a wider range of countries. And this at least has been positive, although one has to be careful have to avoid tokenism. So there are some possibilities of the online space that have opened up um, the chance to have greater inclusivity. But overall, the pandemic has fallen very hard in general on women and also other marginalized groups. Mrs. Abdelhafez, you also read sometimes yes. that, the, the, that the pandemic has led to more innovation, uh, to also enlarging your constituencies. Are there also more positive signs in the sense, for instance, uh, like uh, using the internet and, and crowdfunding, for instance, to, to broaden your funding bases? Uh, I will say there is definitely some positive side, um, especially when it comes to technology. Part of being part of this um, civic society is being required to uh, be present in a lot of convening and a lot of spaces to push your agenda or push certain politics. And suddenly it's online and it's great. There is so much um, happening right now, the ability to attend million spaces and like I can attend a, um, a space every day from my laptop and still be considered as present, yeah. not as, you know, an extra just attending through online when everyone is there. Yeah. So this has created um, a wide, um, a more rich conversation and now everyone can join. And we can only imagine the possibilities of this happening. The biggest mobilization is happening online because there's this hierarchy of who is considered activist and the, the terms and condition is breaking since everyone is online. Yeah. And Instagram is being used as a huge tool for this. 
the amount of uh, discourse and discussion regarding race in Egypt um, that was happening as a connection to everything that's happening in the United States uh, during uh, the year 2020 was amazing also. And this is because finally on the online sphere, the virtual world is considered as a platform good enough. So the policymakers are finally listening to people who are speaking online. I read a quote, and we also briefly spoke about it in our introductory conversation, uh, uh, Mr. Carruthers. You state in one of your articles, most Western governments still do not strongly prioritize closing civic space in their foreign policy agendas. They often refrain from escalating diplomatic pressure on repressive governments for fear of damaging their geopolitical security or economic interests. In some, roughly speaking, there's a conflict of interest between and the fighting of a shrinking civic space and maintaining diplomatic relations. That, that, that's quite a provocative statement. And I'm not a politician and I'm not sure if I completely agree. But if you would be a donor government, how would you deal with balancing what often seems conflicting interests? Well, uh, I, <laughs> I stand by what I said. Uh, maybe it's the view in Washington a bit, but, you know, I would have to say the, the U.S. government is greatly constrained in its efforts to stand up for civic space by many relationships it has with security partners. So the idea that there's a basic contradiction between stability and security on the one hand and civic space mm -hmm. is a misunderstanding. And so we really have to take a, a better view of this, this relationship between security and civic space. And if we do, then I think uh, governments like the United States that have so often in the past sacrificed their values and this interest in civic space and in human rights for the sake of these security relationships would stop doing so, so much. Yeah. Uh, this balancing balancing act between uh, uh, different interests uh, of government. Uh, Mrs. Abdelhavis, do you have a similar uh, experience uh, uh and what do you think the international community needs to do more or less uh, in, in that perspective? Well, I, I do agree with the quote. <laughs> there is a responsibility for the international community, um, and not only in the context of Egypt, but many similar countries, to um, try to understand its role in affirming and normalizing uh, many oppressive situations we find ourselves in. And sometimes you feel a little bit that you're being let down. So there is affirmation for the situation because it does establish some sort of security. But security for whom? Is it security for the international community? Security for another country? Security for donor countries? It's, it's, we need to ask ourselves, like, security for whom? Definitely not for us. Yeah. And by us, I mean as a a person living here. But still, you're, you're, you keep on going. Uh, can you uh, tell us some of the results that you have achieved with your uh, organization in the last years? Are there some successes also that we can uh, learn from? There's a lot. There is a lot. And it's not only for our organization. There is a new generation and there is a stronger movement that is holding um, a more mature discourse and speaking about every issue and addressing every issue that's happening right now. Uh, our feminism, our feminist movement in 2020 is definitely intersectional. It is definitely inclusive of queer people and trans people it's, and sex workers and, and um, working women and everyone else. Um, even if we we're unable to convene and meet in spaces, that still did not stop us. And uh, there is a local and um, knowledge that is inaccessible and produced by the local communities where we're no longer the subject of study. Mm -hmm. We are the producer of our own knowledge. Uh, there is connection happening with many movements in the global south. The, the movement right now is extremely connected to many comrades, brothers and sisters in the global south. There is amazing mobilization regarding cases that would not have been discussed uh, or not have been seen as political and now they're seeing as extremely political uh, so and even people ability to connect in times like this and be present online and despite the fact that everything is asking you to just give up and stop doing this it's still happening 
Uh, it's great to see this this shift towards uh, leadership in the global south and 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 south uh, uh, south cooperation, so to speak. Uh, for the Netherlands, I mean, working in partnership with civil society is key and one what could say almost part of our DNA. Um, we also do this in our development cooperation policy, and recently we have signed 43 partnerships. Uh, with alliances of civil society organizations to enhance capacity to make sure voices on a range of topics are heard and recommendations are integrated in policy uh, on a national but also on an international level. Uh, do you believe, Mrs. Abdelhafez, um, that donor institutions like from the Netherlands can really add value also diplomatically besides funding? Um, there must be. <laughs> there have to be. There should be. Definitely. Amplifying the voices of the local community. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Amplifying as and by amplifying, allowing the local community to take the the take the mic when it comes to a lot of issues and using uh, the local community not only as a resource but as a, sh a shaper of the policies. So uh, there's a lot that can happen. Uh, which one podcast would not be enough <laughs> to even discuss? Um, having um, a, a deep and real connection, not only in the time of crises, that will be great because sometimes we hear from funders once a year, which is amazing. You still get the resources, but you do not build an, um, a relationship where there's a flow of information. There is not mutual learning. Yeah. And um, funding in terms of money is not only enough, but informing a process of communication, going and coming back, that what might makes a huge difference. Uh, Mr. Carothers, uh, could diplomats on a multilateral level, for instance in the UN arena, do more to battle a shrinking civic space? Yes, definitely. Um, they've done some. You know, there's been some good initiatives by mm, certain special rapporteurs at the UN and the Human Rights Council in some cases. You know, the universal periodic review that the Human Rights Council uh, sets in motion in a number of countries has been effective in raising civic space issues. But of course, the multilateral domain is difficult. You have governments like the government of China that are very active in the Human Rights Council and other places trying to water down the activity of these organizations, trying to uh, weaken it. And, and so it's not like we can't say the UN, mm -hmm. um, in a sense, as an actor. We have to look at what governments within it are using the organization for what purposes. But I would like to emphasize that individual governments really have an important role to play in highlighting the cases of specific activists who are being mistreated. And so there's a lot that diplomats can do if they're aware of this agenda and aware of what are the key pressure points. So uh, both at the multilateral and the bilateral level, it's crucial that the diplomatic world engage on these issues. No, and in the end, it's not about papers and reporting. It's about real uh, making a real difference, uh, as I said, locally, nationally, and also on an international level. And uh, that goes far beyond um, uh, shifting paper and shifting reports. It's about the real actions uh, that we together collectively make as uh, as you as an activist, um, as you, Mr. Carothers, as an academic, and we as diplomats working for, for donor organizations. Well, thank you very much for your very valuable responses. I think uh, it's brings us much closer to a better understanding of what's going on in, in terms of uh, civic space and the shrinking civic space. And we will take uh, your comments and your uh, ideas uh, to uh, the second part of this, um, this podcast and uh, uh, to our next uh, two speakers after a little break. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mrs. Abdelhavas and Mr. Carruthers. Uh, pleasure hosting you and we look forward to seeing and hearing more of your important work. Dear listeners, we will continue our conversation with our next uh, two guest speakers, Mr. Clément Nielat-Sosi-Voulet and Mrs. Lisa John. Mr. Voulet, a Togolese national, was appointed as UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights to Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and Association in April 2018. And Lisa John is Secretary General of Civicus. Civicus is a global alliance of civil society organizations and activists dedicated to strengthening citizen action and civil society throughout the world. Maybe, Mrs. John, could you fill up uh, a bit on your work? Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I'll introduce myself first and foremost as an activist. I've spent 27 years of my life studying about and working towards democracy and human rights, which I firmly believe are the two most important 
principles of any humane and progressive society. Uh, and it's therefore a huge privilege to be serving uh, Civicus, which is, uh, you know, one of the world's largest alliances for civil society and citizen action. And uh, I, I think what we do is really embrace the spirit of diversity and mm -hmm. uh, action across the world and continuously engage with new forms of activism, uh, you know, as we see it growing uh, at least across the last three decades. And I'll speak more to it, you know, as we go along uh, in, in this, in this uh, interaction. Thank you very much. Now, uh, what, what do you see are the trends when we talk about uh, civil society organizations, their work and, 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 and shrinking civic space, uh, Lisa? So the nature of civic space has indeed changed, not just in the past decades, but even in just the last year. So one of the things we do is operate a civicus monitor, which is uh, a, a research tool that systematically tracks the state of civic freedoms across the world. And what we've seen in 2020 has been that even in established democracies, you know, the governments have used the pandemic to disproportionately curtail fundamental freedoms. So 87% of the world's population, which is nearly nine of 10 people across the world today, live in contexts where their civic freedoms are under attack. And then a quarter of the world's population, which is four out of 10 people, live in contexts where civic space is completely closed. So in such uh, countries or contexts, uh, you you know, state and non-state actors could routinely intimidate, harass, attack, and even kill you for simply exercising your universally recognized right of expression, of peaceful assembly, and of association. Mr. Volley, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you explain the listeners uh, a bit about uh, what your role is within the UN? Yes, uh, uh, again, thank you very much for, for this uh, invitation. And I, I was appointed uh, by the UN uh, as a UN Special Rapporteur uh, on Peaceful Assembly and Association in 2018. And my job mainly is to monitor the, the state of the freedom of association peaceful assembly around the world to report back to UN but also um, to assist states in implementing their obligation under the International Covenant and Civil and Political Rights, which uh, requests states to protect the right to freedom of association and peaceful assembly in their legislation, but also by taking a, a concrete measure to ensure that uh, citizens uh, enjoy this fundamental freedom. Uh, my role also involved, for example, uh, uh, meeting with civil society, different actors in order to, in, to promote uh, these fundamental freedoms, uh, because those freedoms are important in any democratic society, uh, in any society uh, that is aiming to build an inclusive and peaceful society. If you listen to, to our earlier speakers, I mean, you would think that um, you would receive more complaints uh, uh, nowadays. Is that also what you see? Is there a trend towards um, more shrinking civic space? One can say that the situation is getting a little bit worse today um, because we witness around the world uh, uh, some of the measures taken by the states to, to repress the enjoyment of this fundamental freedom. Today, we continue to face this um, challenging for civil society to operate freely in, main, in many parts of uh, the world. Mm -hmm. um, civil society is not able to register. Uh, civil society also going through under uh, a lot of legislation adopted in the country, either which restricts the, um, their right to receive funding without foreign funding. It's difficult for civil society to be able to carry their work and help those who they're supposed to, to help. Um, we know also that uh, uh, we have also today uh, and uh, uh, this new uh, tra digital transformation uh, today, that while it brings quite a lot for civil society, we also know that it also have quite, uh, it also come with a lot of challenge because this also um, is used by many states also uh, to survey civil society and, and also to, uh, to limit the, um, the, the activity of civil society online. Mrs. John, do you also see that, 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 that international community is a bit stuck 
in, in the in current time uh, in, in responding to the needs of civil society? What, what, what should we do differently? So, uh, particularly in the last year, there have been two trends that we've seen that have a direct impact on the work and lives of not just civil society actors, but also active citizens across the world. Uh, the first is really is the you know devastating misuse of technology uh, in order to increase censorship, in order to increase surveillance, and in order to increase targeted misinformation or propaganda against civil society actors and particularly journalists and human rights defender. Mm -hmm. uh, the second trend is really the impunity with which state and non-state actors are able to get away with harassment uh, and and attacks and intimidation of uh, you know, citizens, active citizens and civil society uh, uh, again. And, and this requires the international community to be much stronger in the way that they hold people accountable to their commitment to our fundamental freedoms. And it requires, uh, you know, governments who are progressive to not only, uh, you know, demonstrate that action or that commitment towards civil society within their own borders, but really use multilateral institutions and spaces to hold other governments, their other peers, accountable to do the same as well. Can you give examples of how that uh, turned out positively? Definitely. The Human Rights Council has actually uh, played quite an important role in at least raising and attempting to hold countries accountable, and, and Mr. Vule has been part of that action as well. But uh, a lot of our human rights, international human rights mechanisms have really been called to the fore in the past year in terms of holding not just actors in the global south, but also the global north, you know, accountable to an international space, to the international community in terms of explaining why uh, certain targeted actions or the or inactions have not been dealt with better. And uh, it's just not in the context of racial justice or Black Lives Matter, but also in the context of, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, incidents or the kind of visuals we saw of migrant workers, for instance, in certain regions walking miles and miles, mm -hmm. you know, in order to get home in the context of the pandemic, the whole call for better social security and for countries to step up and protect workers. And then, uh, you know, the Civicus Monitor itself, for instance, has made a special note of the rise in attacks on women and on uh, on peaceful protesters in 2020, which has been higher than any of the previous years. And it, it goes to show that, you know, citizens across the world or people across the world are organizing at a bigger and, and, and larger scale than ever before to address systemic and structural injustices. And governments actually are the ones who need to reinvent themselves and find better ways to engage with this kind of dialogue and dissent uh, going forward. At the same time, we're living also very much in, in, in digital space, more and more, especially now in the, in, in the pandemic. Um, in, in what way, Mrs. John, uh, does this increased digital world, increasing digital world, help us or, or, or work against us when we talk about uh, assisting civil society organizations? Uh, so, so in terms of trends in civic action and social movements, one of the most inspiring aspects is the way that the ability to engage with, you know, public policies, the ability to speak out for rights has been mainstreamed across societies around the world. And so you no longer have, you know, little islands or, or little pockets of resistance, as we like to call it, but we actually have a much larger intergenerational, multi-sectoral, uh, you know, kind of upsurge uh, in terms of holding governments more accountable, in terms of demanding uh, you know, both economic, social and climate justice uh, is acted on and understood much better across uh, countries. And I think that's the inspiration that we have in terms of the future of active citizenship and social movements across the world. And the one thing that, you know, 2020 taught us was the complete failure of authoritarian styles of governments and leadership in, in dealing with complex and, and new uh, you know, prob uh, global problems. Uh, instead, I think what we're saying is governments really, both at the local and global levels, need to reinvent their approaches so that they can be much more inclusive. They can actually celebrate dialogue and dissent rather than, than you know, block or prevent that because the next generation of citizens are, are citizens who are more connected, more informed, and more able to access opportunities for action than any 
time before in human history and we're not going to see that trend reversing that's just something that's going to get stronger and more powerful as we go forward mr valet do you agree with that do you see also different in between generations of people approaching you since three years now with people really uh standing up against the authoritarian regime and uh those the, most of those people that stand up are more young people and you can see also that the tools that they are using today are quite different to the what we, we we know about activism uh, many years ago and you can also see that this is also the generation that is really committed and they they want change not tomorrow but today and i i think there is this difference that uh, i'm seeing in terms of uh the approach that um this generation use but also um the eager for this uh, new generation also to get things done today i mean they uh, people today don't want to give up to our freedom and and you can see today from i mean just one example Myanmar. uh you can see that most of the people that are on streets although uh, repression is going on people are kept saying that we will uh, we will we will we, we will defend our democracy and even if you you kill all of we will defend it until the end and we will get our democracy back yeah now young young people are much better connected uh, do you think that that within the un uh, or also maybe within civicus we are engaging enough with 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 youth yes i think the recent 10 years we we really realize the power and also the need to ensure that uh, our policies, our engagement is more inclusive, but inclusive for young people also. There is a lot of discourse about uh, taking an account young people need, but when it comes to the action, I think we still uh, need, we, we still have much to do. Mrs. John, do you also see that? Certainly, and in fact, I can give you the example uh, of Civicus itself, uh, you know, in the last three years, our membership has closed to triple. So in 2018, we were 4,000 plus members. And in 2021, we are now 12,000 plus members. And and uh, the biggest proportion of additional members is actually young uh, individuals below the age of 30 who don't really see themselves as, you know, uh, professionals linked to a particular organization or an NGO and they don't come from any one affiliation, but see themselves much more, you know, comprehensive as, you know, uh, as active citizens or as activists across issues. And that's the big difference from perhaps my generation of people who considered ourselves as, you know, kind of specific issue or specific region or location-based activists and, and I think the current generation of active citizens who who see themselves as much strong, more strongly connected to wider systemic issues and analysis of justice and change. And that's also kind of evidenced from, uh, again, our State of Civil Society report where consistently across the last decade we've seen that even the most local incidents, whether they're related to an increase in fuel prices or a WhatsApp tax or transport, uh, you know, kind of prices quickly change into a much larger call for, uh, you know, much more fundamental freedom oriented issues. And I think that ability to not to, to be able to see things that are happening across the world, not as, you know, isolated incidents of, you know, very local, uh, you know, disruption, but to actually see things across the world and make that connection has has really been fostered by this generation or, or the younger generation of people and it's 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 really a, a reflection of you know even the transition at a global level from a millennium development goal kind of architecture to a sustainable development uh, goal orientation which is far more interdependent far more complex but also far more comprehensive in the outcomes we need for the world yeah what I found very interesting was that uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests that you would also hear people call for transgender uh, rights uh, and all these different issues um, came together that that, that would um, maybe in the first eye not really connect. So people were calling for, for uh, anti-racist anti uh, um, um, actions and at the same time also calling for for the rights of, of 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 transgenders for instance so this whole connection of different rights also complicates our works our work i think but it's also an opportunity because mm -hmm. i mean we can also say that young generation they have open-minded i mean they are more connected today 
than 20 years ago. And they are also more open mind in terms of how the in terms of the um, how those rights are int integrated, and I think is 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 good to see that they can they can they can also connect themselves to the struggle of others and see also that whenever a right or you you are silenced in front of some violation, you can also you are encouraging also other violation, and I think this is important. Um, in in a way that um, it it help also to build this global understanding that human rights is fundamental for everyone. Depend uh, no matter who you are, where you are. But a lot of people w would say uh, also in the global south that 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 I mean this is a very progressive agenda and it doesn't suit uh, the local situation. Uh, w when you meet people in, in, in certain countries in the global south, for instance, not even in the global south only, I mean, but, but people are really struggling uh, to, to get their rights, uh, LGBTI rights, uh, women uh, rights. Uh, and at the same time, the, uh, people say, yeah, but those rights come from the global north and these, this is against our culture and etc. How do we um, deal with, 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 with this struggle between uh, rising conservatism and more progressive agendas? What I, the point I want to make here is is that uh, for me those kind of um, time or opportunity where you can see, for example, that in in one of the protests, if you take Black Matter, that the whole protest also by denouncing the racism is also denouncing any kind of uh, discriminatory attack against uh, against uh, LGBTI people. It 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 also gives the sign to the government that um, it's not only about LGBTI people, but it's about human rights. That it's a concern about communities, a, a concern about all of us. And I think this kind of discourse also um, help also us whenever, for example, we engage in, in with government in type of this issue to reiterate that it's not about indiv only individual, but it's about their fundamental freedoms. It's about human rights. The way that if I just give an example of uh, Africa, the way a uh, few years ago, you can talk about LGBTI rights. It was quite difficult, and you 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 will be stigmatized quickly. But today, you can see a lot of LGBTI activists in some country talking about their rights and everything. Although we still have some challenge in terms of laws, in terms of practice, in terms of uh, some administrative uh, uh, measure or practice, but it it, it it means that society are. Um, are creating their own way to 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 uh, they are creating their strength to understand uh, little by little the the importance of seeing this as fundamental freedom than only seeing this as a practice coming from one society because a lot of LGBTI people that are in Africa they're African <laughs> they're African they are citizens of Africa they have the same right. <laughs> And these groups might, uh, and their organizations might find a lot of legitimacy internationally and through their international connections, where, of course, the internet, etc., helps nowadays. But at the same time, they are very much depend on, on foreign funding. How can we make sure that there's also more local legitimacy created for um, CSOs working on, on more um, challenging issues? One of the things we observed during the course of 2020 is that the organizations or, or you know, the activist, uh, you know, formations that were the most resilient uh, have been the ones that have a very strong relationship with their own constituency. And that doesn't have to be only a local constituency. But if you're very clear about whose interests you're serving, whose interests you're representing and, and you know, the, the, the public support and legitimacy that you have behind you, you're going to be able to overcome a lot of barriers, whether they're, you know, resourcing related barriers or political challenges, because you have the support of communities. And I think that's been the most important takeaway uh, for a lot of networks from the last year that, you know, we have to keep reinventing ourselves as civil society. But it also means at, at two levels, one is really to continuously engage and mobilize and organize, uh, you know, individuals and, and communities to to be the face and the voice of the cause that you're talking about and therefore you, you draw your power and your legitimacy from the people you work with and you represent. But on the other hand, I think in this day and age, it should be inexcusable for any country 
to not invest in the kind of infrastructure that's needed for civil society to actually flourish and 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 you know an empowered a well networked and well resourced civil society is a public good that every single country needs at this point in time and we've seen that we've seen that even in the most closed and repressive civic space context people have the ability to stand up for their rights and and that's part of our entire journey on this planet right i mean through every point in human history whenever you've had someone who's cracked down on uh you know on communities who's tried to violate you know the 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 really fundamental universal principles of justice and and what is right you have had resistance and and that's why i think you know what mr vule spoke of of earlier in terms of the intergenerational and and in the the interregional or in, or transnational activism it's it's really an opportunity to redefine solidarity but also to redefine accountability and make sure that governments actually are the ones who are now trying to reinvent themselves and be better at what they do do you feel that uh, mr fulay that people have enough space to 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 really listen to each other uh, because sometimes i feel we don't create enough space for for governments and civil society to really come together and and before accusing each other of all kinds of, of of things really listen to each other is there a declining appetite to just to listen and sit together i think my role as a special rapporteur is also was always also to create this kind of opportunity mm-hmm. whenever i visit the country whenever i engage with government to encourage the government to involve civil society and i reiterate that that any government will never come over this crisis without involving civil society or without involving the society as a whole in the measure that will be put in place uh, because i realized that at the beginning many government do see this crisis as a, a health crisis so do not even think about uh, what will be the impact on the marginalized group in, in, or what will be the human rights impact of the crisis and some government that start really involving civil society start really having this kind of conflict, con- con- consultation see the positive of such uh, uh, practices uh in overcoming the pandemic uh, mrs john if if I, if i'm a dutch diplomat uh, working at a certain embassy in a certain country how could i contribute to to creating such a space for for conversation and and cso's and 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 the, and the government and and diplomats coming together and listen to each other and, and listen to each other's challenges in fact one of the things that we've actually partnered with uh uh with the dutch government own is the creation of uh, diplomat and defender dialogues across countries and this has started since last year in fact so it's a, it's a completely voluntary effort where the ambassador or or the uh, the staff of a particular embassy who are really uh, interested in hearing directly from civil society uh, you know and, and and understanding the patterns of civic space before it becomes a crisis uh you know need to have an ongoing dialogue with civil society not just in the urban centers but also from the rural and remote uh locations and that's been enabled uh, at least because all of us are doing online uh forms of engagement or at least telecommunication based forms of engagement now and 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 this has happened in at least six uh countries so far and it has really helped civil society locally feel supported and and reinforced in terms of their you know calls or their struggles and and this actually came up as a result of an exchange with ambassadors uh, uh you know from the Netherlands where we we realized that many of them met people from the business community almost on a you know a regular weekly basis mm-hmm. but very rarely had that similar opportunity to have a relation building a trust building exchange with civil society counterparts so i, I think we don't have to wait for an annual moment or uh, a very formal event in order to know you know what civil society is doing on the ground we we should be fostering those relationships those discourses those dialogues and and essentially that trust right and again that that opportunity for solidarity at every chance we can get uh, so that we don't have to wait things th- till things escalate till people are losing their lives till things are out of control in order for the international community to intervene allow me to ask you uh, one one more question i mean it's easy sometimes to to lose hope and to to get a bit uh, demotivated uh, when you see what's going on in the world and all the challenges we have um h- how do you continue to be hopeful uh, mr fouley and and where does your um, inspiration come from uh, uh, doing this work well um uh, let i will say that my inspiration come from really um uh this um commitment and this um 
resilience of civil society to continue to push, although some of the challenge that we are we are seeing currently and which which are also magnified by the COVID nineteen currently, and this gives me really hope because I'm as as a UN special rapporteur, I have more protection than people that uh, civil society that is working on the ground, and the fact that they have this hope. It also strengthens also my commitment to continue to support them. And I think also for me, um, today maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being maybe on a, a different page. I think that the, what the world witnessed as pandemic of COVID-19, it also gave us the opportunity to think about the kind of world we want. And we saw that COVID-19 also remind us that the focus should be the human being, not anything else. We saw during this time that the only thing that mattered during this COVID-19 was human being. It means that we need in rebuilding this world to put human being in the center. And for me, this gives me hope. Many people may say, no, as soon as this thing end, people will go for usual business and the usual things climate change will not matter, anything will not matter. But I still hope that we will learn quite a lot, a lot of things from the COVID-19. That the people, conversation, consultation, ensuring that uh, the people come together, work together, um, defend what is fundamental, the life, what is fundamental, the life of people is important. And for me, this continues to give me a hope. And I'm sure that yes, COVID-19 uh, create this opportunity for many governments to restrict civic civic space, but it also is is also the turning point for civic society for government also to build the world that we want for the future, including also moving to the uh, uh, to the green energy, moving to the uh, um, uh, to the protection of our environment. Thank you, Mrs. John. What is your uh, what keeps you going? Well, I think for me, it's the fact that year on year, our civic space research has shown that 21st century activism is more pervasive, more connected and more persistent than ever before. The strength of civic action and the hunger or the urgency of protecting civic freedoms has just grown year on year and, and, and there's no rolling that back. Uh, last year, in fact, uh, we marked 75 years of the United Nations and the, the one call that came across really strongly from, uh, you know, civic responses or citizen responses across the world was the fact that the UN has to serve its core purpose of, you know, of being we the people. It, it, it should move away from the narrow specific political and economic interests of member states and come back to that, you know, vision of really serving the broadest and, and, and the most fundamental needs or aspirations of humanity and these, this is all about determining the quality of our life and the quality of life for the generations after us. And we will have another opportunity in, in 2023, it's 75 years of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I, I do hope that many more governments and communities and civil society networks get together uh, you know, to, to make that a moment where we will celebrate what actually we share in common, right, and what we what holds us together beyond our borders and boundaries. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lisa John and Clément Vallée. It was great having you with us uh, on this podcast. And let's dedicate this podcast to all those working on the front lines, those civil society organizations and activists trying to make uh, the world a little bit better and trying to leave no one behind. Thank you.